From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. We've gotten past the idea of just defunding the police, but it's still important to hold rogue police officers accountable, and it's still hard to do that. That's why Joanna Schwartz wrote this book. It's called Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable. She's a UCLA law professor. And uh, is it fair to say that it was the the George Floyd murder that uh, catalyzed this project for you? It certainly catalyzed me writing this book. It's The book is based on research that I have done for uh, about 15 years. Um, and then before that, questions that I was Uh, inspired to ask based on my own experience as a civil rights attorney. But it is after George Floyd's murder, as I was fielding calls from legislators and journalists about how our civil justice system worked, that I decided it was important to write a book that that made all of these complicated issues uh, understandable to a a non-legal audience. And people could see not only what each of these barriers are, but how they fit together. And a lot of what's discussed in your book is centers around qualified immunity. We hear that phrase all the time uh, in the news when we're talking about police use of force. So can you explain qualified immunity and how that has made officers so untouchable? Absolutely. And it is a phrase that's referred to often, but but it's not always easy to understand what it means. Mm-hmm. Qualified immunity is a defense that the Supreme Court created in 1967. And and when the first uh, case issued uh, regarding qualified immunity uh, by the court was was, uh, decided, the court described qualified immunity as a good faith defense. If an officer thought they were following the law, but they violated it, they were entitled to qualified immunity. But the court has repeatedly strengthened this defense, first saying officers' intent doesn't matter. They can act in bad faith so long as they don't violate what the court called clearly established law. And then in a series of decisions, the Supreme Court has defined clearly established law in a way that's virtually impossible to meet. Uh, A plaintiff has to find a prior court decision with nearly identical facts where the Supreme Court or a court of appeals held that the officer violated the Constitution. And so this is a doctrine that ends up excusing uh, really egregious behavior, unconstitutional behavior, simply because the officer had the good fortune to violate the law in a way that had not precisely been uh, ruled unconstitutional before. But Colleen and I were discussing this. That's an impossibility. There was one case in particular you wrote about uh, where I think it was Fresno police officers stole $250,000 worth of cash and rare coins. And the court decided that, okay, yeah, the police officers should have known it was wrong to steal. But because there was uh, no case, I believe, that uh, they would have known that this violates the Fourth Amendment, they were... They were granted qualified immunity. I mean, to me, that just. But by doing that, bonkers. you guarantee there won't be a precedent for the next time it happens. Right. right. So there can never be a precedent. That's right. I mean, all that you say is is true. And the Supreme Court has actually made that even more difficult by telling lower courts that they can grant qualified immunity without ruling on whether the Constitution has been violated. So. Courts are telling, the Supreme Court is telling people whose rights have been violated that they have to find a prior case with nearly identical facts. And then they're telling courts they don't have to issue those decisions. Uh, and to add yeah. to the, the the unsensibility of this, the doctrine is explained as necessary to put officers on notice 
of the unconstitutionality of their conduct. But officers aren't actually trained about the facts and the holdings of the kinds of cases that clearly establish the law. Instead, they're taught general principles, principles like you can't use force against a non-resisting suspect. And then they get accustomed to applying that standard in the innumerable ways in which they might uh, confront it. They're not taught the facts and holdings of these cases. They couldn't. They couldn't possibly learn them all or remember them all or recall them all as they're doing their job. It's a fiction that officers need qualified immunity to put them on notice. What's in it for the courts to make it so impossible for anybody to sue a law enforcement officer for civil rights abuses? The the courts have been uh, telling a similar story as legislators and as union officials and as law enforcement officials for decades and decades that if justice were too easy to attain, that courthouses would overflow with frivolous claims, that officers would be bankrupted for split second decisions and then would be afraid to vigorously uh, do their job or would decide not to serve as a law enforcement officer at all. And the way the Supreme Court tells this story, chaos would erupt. The court has talked about the importance of qualified immunity to society as a whole. The idea that if we didn't have it, we wouldn't have officers willing to do their jobs. These claims have no basis in reality. And in fact, I've spent my academic career studying many of them and found them to be overblown, if not downright false. But they're frightening claims. They're made over and over again. And I think that the court, um, as well as state and local legislators, are reluctant to take down these shields and in fact erect more and more because of these overblown but very frightening claims about what it would mean to hold officers and police departments responsible for constitutional violations. Well, you know, we've gone from uh, defund the police now to, oh my God, we haven't got enough police. And uh, so for, for police departments who are struggling to hire, I think they worry about this, that, that if, the, um, if there is no qualified immunity, well, it's going to make it, make it even tougher to hire cops. So can you address yourself to somebody who's considering being a police officer but is worried? Oh, if, I, if I become an officer in this present environment, somebody's going to sue my pants off over nothing. Absolutely. And, and there are uh, often claims uh, and concerns that without qualified immunity, officers will be bankrupted for split second yeah. mistakes that they make on the job. Well, officers are not bankrupted in these cases. In fact, officers virtually never contribute anything to settlements and judgments in these cases. And it has nothing to do with qualified immunity. It has to do instead with the fact that states and local governments across the country have what are called indemnification agreements. Uh, that provide that when an officer is sued, they are provided an an attorney and any settlement or judgment is paid from city funds or from insurance funds. When I looked at 81 jurisdictions across a six-year period, I found that officers contributed 0.02% of the dollars in these Mm -hmm. cases with 99.98% coming from central funds or insurance funds. There was only two jurisdictions where officers contributed anything. And what they contributed was on average $4,000. The idea that officers will be 
found liable for reasonable mistakes is also directly uh, goes against the way that the Supreme Court has interpreted the Constitution, uh, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures in the Fourth Amendment. But uh, the court has interpreted that to mean that police can stop, search, arrest, assault, and even kill people who've done nothing wrong without violating their constitutional rights, so long as that the mistakes they make were reasonable. One final thing, when you ask officers whether they believe there should be these protections, uh, many say no. And the reason is that good officers want there to be accountability for bad officers. Good officers uh, don't want to work with bad officers and good officers don't want the view that we have in our current society that police are untouchable. I think that having a working system of accountability that, that finds meaningful consequences for officers who violate the badge and violate the law is uh, something that law enforcement, good law enforcement officers can and do want to have. Mm. That's heartening to hear because, you know, yeah, before we we started talking with you, Dave and I were going back and forth and I thought, well, yeah, I mean, if an officer says I can't do my job without violating a civil right, I don't want that officer to be on the force. So if you can't face qualified immunity and say, that's all right, I'll do my job well. Okay, so it's nice to hear that officers agree on that. Uh, We were so close to getting qualified immunity at least weakened after uh, the George Floyd case, and the same arguments came up, and, you know, we're back to square one. We still have qualified immunity. What will it take to to weaken that? Who or what? Well, I think that uh, there have been some interesting pushes forward in state governments, uh, even though the Supreme Court created qualified immunity, state uh, legislatures have have found a workaround, really, which is that people can sue for violations of the state constitution in state court without qualified immunity as a defense. And more than half the states across the country introduced this kind of legislation after George Floyd's murder. Now, many of those bills failed for the same reason as uh, the bill in Congress failed, which to my mind is because these overblown and false claims about bankrupt officers and uh, being bankrupted for for reasonable mistakes captured people's attention. But it's not proving uh, it's not proving convincing for every legislator or for every legislature across the country. And I truly believe, and this is part of the reason I wrote Shielded, that if we could come to a shared understanding of what qualified immunity is and what qualified immunity does, and the many, many other protections against liability for insubstantial or frivolous cases, that we could actually get somewhere uh, on qualified immunity and on some of these other common sense reforms. It just requires that we to come together to look at the evidence. Uh, and that's really one of the main reasons why I wrote Shielded. The other shocking thing in this book is how police departments know who the bad apples are and don't fire them. And and I, I was looking at this case of Mario Romero, who was uh, shot by an officer by the name of Sean Kenny in uh, Viejo, California. Uh, the, the guy just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. I guess his car matched a, a suspect car. He ended up shot 30 times in the head. 
And it turns out that the guy who shot him was part of a group known as the Fatal 14, the 14 officers who'd been involved in more than one fatal shooting. And they were in a club where they celebrated these shootings by bending over the points on their badge. This is bizarre. How does someone like that keep his job? It is bizarre and horrifying as well. And I think that there are a a number of ways in which uh, an officer like this can stay employed. There are some departments that do want to get rid of those bad Apple officers and are prevented from doing so by uh, complex uh, protections for officers that are parts of law enforcement uh, officers' bills of rights negotiated by uh, unions. In the case of Vallejo, I think the problem is just deep into the city and the police department, uh, a tolerance for excessive force by their officers. And there's been longstanding efforts uh, by uh, activists in Vallejo and attorneys in Vallejo uh, and some members of local government in Vallejo to try to uh, make things different. There's been a lot of resistance and there is resistance still today. But part of the blame really falls, to my mind, on the courts and on the Supreme Court, which has created a standard for holding local governments responsible that's virtually impossible to meet. This officer who killed Mario Romero killed three people in that same few month span in 2012 when he killed Mario Romero uh, and was never disciplined. And yet when his family tried to sue the city for their pattern and practice and tolerance of misconduct, the claim against the city was dismissed because Mario Romero's family couldn't prove that those prior shootings were unconstitutional, couldn't prove that the chief should, must have taken uh, more action and was deliberately indifferent to the dangers facing the Vallejo community. If there's a standard that's, that tolerates someone like uh, Sean Kenny being on a police force and not only not being disciplined, but being promoted afterwards, then our system of justice is not working as it should. In your opinion, if qualified immunity were weakened or thrown out, would we have better law enforcers? Would we have more community trust? I believe that we would have more community trust, in part because qualified immunity has taken on such an oversized uh, uh, role in our discussion about police reform. I do think that ending qualified immunity would be an important change, but I think it's very important also for people to understand that qualified immunity is one of several barriers to relief in these cases. It can be very difficult to find a lawyer, to plead an initial complaint with enough facts to meet the Supreme Court's standards, to prove a constitutional violation, to prove the local government uh, is responsible. And all of those barriers to relief would still exist even if we got rid of qualified immunity. So lawyers don't take up these cases because they're too hard? It's surprising to to hear, uh, but in many parts of the country, there really is not a civil rights bar that takes these cases. And it's it's they are financially very difficult to bring. Uh, lawyers receive nothing unless their client wins, and they tend to win uh, when they when they do win a portion of that settlement or judgment. But because of qualified immunity and these other barriers to relief, 
Lawyers can spend tens of thousands of dollars in time and their own money bringing these cases, have them dismissed on qualified immunity, and then uh, recover nothing for their time. And I've spoken to a lot of lawyers who have brought their first civil rights case because they were outraged by, by what happened to their client, invest that time and money, have the case dismissed, and then think, you know what, I'm going to go back to bringing medical malpractice cases or personal injury cases that don't have qualified immunity, uh, where I'm more likely to actually recover in these cases. And so for many people, including people I, I, whose stories I tell in, in the book, uh, they have clearly had their rights violated, but they are unable to find lawyers to represent them. So then all that's left is to make sure we don't have rogue cops anymore. Is there any uh, anything we ought to be doing to screen them out that we're not doing now? I'm, I'm curious about whether uh, some of this stuff, you know, strikes me as battlefield tactics. Are there too many uh, ex-military people becoming cops? Well, I think that uh, figuring out how to prevent these harms at the front end is really important. And it, and it does go to who we hire, how we train, and what we authorize police to do. Uh you know, there's a lot of conversations now about uh, reconsidering whether police should be involved in in uh, responding when people are in mental health crises, uh, whether police should be stopping people for uh, small um, traffic uh, violations, and also uh, what these officers are trained to do, and and the idea of this warrior mentality that that officers are are trained in many places to. Uh, to follow. I think these are all important things that we can and must continue to look at and, and, and shifts that are being made slowly, I think, uh, and incrementally over time to improve in all of these ways. Joanna Schwartz is the author of Shielded, How the Police Became Untouchable, teaches at UCLA Law. Professor Schwartz, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in.